Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week I'm just back from Furnace, an excellent convention in Sheffield in England, and it's got us thinking about what we do when we want to run a convention game. How do you prep? What do you do? What would you do perhaps differently when you're in a convention game? So as always, I'm recruiting my girlfriend Baz. Hello Baz. Hey mate, how you doing? Yeah, very good. A little bit sleepy after the weekend, but otherwise all good. So I've got my own ideas, but let's start off with because I think mostly you've run D&D or D&D type games at conventions. Mm -hmm. Is the reason you pick that game in particular, would you say it's a good convention game to run? Or is it just something easy or familiar or about to get lots of people in it? What makes D&D good for a convention game? Uh, all of the above. Um, it's easy for me because I kind of know it inside and out. Um, and at the speed that I go to conventions, there's normally a new edition out by the time I get around to one. So it's always something new and shiny, which... If you want to get players into a game, I'd always recommend picking something fairly new and shiny because uh, I, I think probably ooh, 80, maybe even 90% of the people who sit down to play at convention games that I've run have never played that system before. I find myself demoing as much as anything. And, and if I'm going to do that, I need to know my game pretty well because people want a bit of a, a, a sort of a showcase, I guess. So I run D&D for that reason because I know it so well. Um, also... There's plenty of people who know how to play it too, and I think especially for newbie con goers, um, and this was certainly true when I started going to them. There's a bit of a an assumption that you need to to know the game you're going to play in order to perform quite well. Uh, that, that actually isn't the case at all in in any games really, um, but there, there's certainly that. And because D and D's got such a large player base, I think people sign up for it to get to get a different experience, and maybe even to see how it's supposed to be done. In which case, you're at the wrong table with me, but you know, I appreciate the effort. Um, and I find it fairly simple to to write for a one-shot because you can do your, your three acts or your three scenes or whatever it is you want to do. But it's it's fairly easy to get a beginning, a middle and end to a quest. Um, and I find it easier to do that in D&D style games than I would do in, say, Cyberpunk. Um, not that I can't do that, but it's just, you know, it's, it's ease for me. And then the last thing is it gives me a chance to shake it up a little bit because D&D is so broad um, and I can do stuff that I probably wouldn't do in my weekly campaign, which is, you know, motoring along from levels 1 to 20 over the course of years with the same old characters. I can take a piece of the massive D&D universe and explore that for a little bit just for a few hours. So that's that's why I go. It's not exclusive. Don't always do that. Far from it. But um, it really lets me down. Um, and I can get a pretty good experience out of it, I, I guess, because I know it so well. How about you, mate? Yeah, I think that's good. You, what you probably hit upon there is, is reminding me that I think for D&D, there's a sweet spot, isn't there, for most people? And where it is varies. But I would say, so like either levels three to six or maybe a little bit higher than that, there's a lot of people really like that sort of play. Mm -hmm. And they like playing around that area. So for a one-shot or something, you could definitely pitch something there and you get a good range of abilities. Mm -hmm. And it's not too overwhelming for people who are not like massively into it. Yeah. So I think that's probably one of my first tips for convention games. Certainly when I've played Savage Worlds, for example, I've done a lot of that, a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, there's people who've run it for me and you start with novice characters and they're not very good. You're limited in what you can do. So I always use seasoned characters or a veteran this time around. So my first top tip if you run a convention game is um, give your characters lots of XP and some abilities and cool shizzle to do because it's not a starting adventure where you need to you're going to build up and eventually in six months time you're going to get somewhere good you need people to be at a reasonable competent level to start with but equally you don't want to overdo it you don't want to chuck in level 20 characters at people who've never played D&D before for example or mm. that sort of thing so I think it's, it definitely bears thinking about of giving your players enough to do and making them competent enough without overwhelming them as well so Savage is probably my, my go-to game if I mean that's definitely the easy one. I think I've just about taught I bring the UK how to play a savage now. There's, there's few people <laughs> when I go that still haven't played it at least once. So. Yeah. No, you're right, mate. No, I, I, I just to, to sort of echo what you said. Um, in one of the one of the I guess the chores almost, if it can be seen as a chore, of doing convention GMing is coming up with characters, and and plainly it's easier to come up with half a dozen starting characters than it is half a dozen experienced ones but you but people need a bit of meat and and 
I think people do like to see something a bit different at a con to what they could get at home. And most people start their home games at level one or at novice or whatever the, the game calls it if it operates on a sliding scale. Uh, and that's true in, in, in slightly more um, trendy games as well, like Fate or what have you. You know, you can bump stuff up a little bit. And I guess what you're after is you're looking for a bit more of a, a rounded experience, really, aren't you? It's kind of like superhero movies for me. I, I love superhero comics, but superhero movies often leave me a bit cold because they keep doing the origin story. And what I love about superhero yeah. comics is that they've got 40 years of, of plot behind them and all kinds of craziness has happened. And, you know, they, they keep trying again and again with Spider-Man, for goodness sake. And, they, you know, they're only up to like issue 8,090 or whatever it is by now. So don't be afraid to shoot a little yeah. bit higher like you do, Gaz. And, you know, veteran gunslinger is better than novice gunslinger, no matter what your scenario in the Wild West is. It's got to be, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I think the other thing to do, Savage is good at it because you get edges and hindrances or advantages and disadvantages, essentially. Mm. But having some hindrances or some hooks to hang your character off, that's another good thing. So even then, just you saying veteran gunslinger, in my head, I know what my character looks like. He's got mm. ponies down the side of his trousers, he's got a black hat, he's got two guns, six shooters, you know. I think another great thing if you're making your characters is to give them some hooks. And they might be sort of obvious ones they might be kind of cliched or well-worn tropes or whatever else but you've got to remember that someone's going to pick this character sheet up cold and have to do something with it and some players are very inventive uh, some less so some might even ignore most of the stuff that's on the sheet to be honest but giving your characters some easy hooks for the players to do something with i think you'll find most players will pick up and run with it and that leads to a better convention game as well, because if you can get the players bringing stuff in based on their really obvious road signs about how their character acts or is, that adds so much more to the game and takes a lot of weight off your shoulders, Jeff, and gets them talking amongst themselves, I think. Mm. Is that something that you've done? I know certain systems, like I say, have got advantages and disadvantages, but do you... I think it's worthwhile, so... so so I'm probably asking a lot of questions, but do you reckon it's worth adding that in even if your system doesn't have it? So I don't know whether D&D necessarily has that sort of thing in built, but mm. would you give backgrounds or one-liners to people to give them a, an indication of how they should play it, or would you just let them roll? Um, I would absolutely give them one-liners, and I would never give them backgrounds, funnily enough. Um, I mean, basically, you know, when Fate came along, that kind of changed everything for me because aspects are brilliant. And if you don't know, uh, the way that fate works is that it, it picks very short, pithy phrases or sentences or even just a couple of words to really identify a character. And veteran gunslinger might be a great example of an aspect, as might be scared of your own shadow or something like that. And fate characters have numbers and dice as well as all of that, but everybody talks about the aspects and for good reason, because, you know, if you like words, and I think role players do like words, it's a great way of of telling people what your character is. You can just read down the list of aspects and everybody would get it. And it's so portable because I was adding that into my fourth edition D&D games um, almost as soon as I could. And fifth edition takes that idea and runs with it. So it is in D&D now. You have flaws and you have bonds and ideals and that kind of stuff. But if I'm running a con game, it almost doesn't matter what the system is. And and I'm going to ask you about this in a sec, guys, about character sheets, because I think, you know, one of the GM's duties is to provide character sheets, not just the characters. And your home game probably rocks along quite nicely with the character sheet out the back of your rule book, whatever your game is. But your con game really shines when you take whatever the system provides you for, like, characteristics or your backgrounds or your one-liners, and you stick them in really big type right in the middle of the character sheet because your players have probably only got a few minutes to get to grips with this character. And as we already said, it might actually be kind of levelled up or experienced or meaty or fully flavoured. It might already have quite a bit to it. So you absolutely need probably a list of between three and five things that will just pop in your head. And sticking them smack bang in the middle of the character sheet or right at the top really helps that happen. And I've seen some great character sheets that are done on two sides or little booklets just to to really push that characterization forward so that when you as a player get your tell us about your character moment, you're not looking down your list of spells or your list of talents. You're looking at what sort of character you are. 
and, and I know that Gaz, you put probably as much effort into designing your sheets as you do coming up with the numbers and words that go on them. Is that fair to say? Probably more. <laughs> <laughs> the numbers yeah. bit's the easy part. <laughs> yeah, quite right. Um, it depends on the amount I have time I have. Sorry, um, which is getting less and less these days. Um, so I need to get that going. But yeah, I wanted um, a hook when game for tentacles back in the day. A little A5 booklet for that with kind of um, period portrait on the front and then on the inside cover had your main stats. The, the right-hand side kind of had some background of what you think of the characters and on the back there was all the options for the game, kind of, you know, combat options and all that kind of stuff. And it looks really cool and it gets people interested, I think. Um, one of the things I noticed at first was a lot of people wanted to keep the character sheets as well because they're mm -hmm. quite happy about the character they've played and feel engaged with them. But yeah, definitely... Um, I think in role-playing games, quite a lot, I've discussed this with one or two publishers as well, is that the character sheet seems to be an afterthought. Like, they made the game and they go, oh, you know, crap, we need a character sheet, actually, I forgot about that. And one gets slung together, but with that, actually, the benefit of it being used in anger and not necessarily having the right things in the right places. Hmm. Like, the um, the latest edition of Pendragon uh, doesn't have a space for your squire, I believe, or it was perhaps the previous version wow. <laughs> you, know, you, you squire something you use all the time. Yeah, and you have to go on the back of the sheet to find him, and it's kind of like that. That's an oversight, surely. Yeah. Whereas you know your your homeland and what your father's called and various other things on the front of the sheet. Well, you don't use them, so what? Why on earth are they there? Do you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, I've, I've got a great um, a great fondness for making my own character sheets, and like I say, putting important information on the front. Uh, I tend to put full skill lists for Savage, for example, because I want them to know what the skills are right. in case they want to try and do something. But grey out the skills they haven't got and put the other ones in bold or a different colour so they stand out. Like These are the things you can do. Hmm. So make it obvious. But yeah, I think definitely if you've got the time or, I mean, these days there's that many different variants of character sheets that other people have already done on the internet. Go and have a bit of a look on Google Images for insert game name here, character sheet. You can find some really useful ones. And as well, things like little worksheets or hint charts or all that kind of stuff. Thank God for the technological age. You don't have to do it all yourself anymore. People have probably already done it. Mm. But yeah, well worth focusing people on exactly what it is that their character can do. Whether that's numbers or whether, <clears throat> excuse me, about their character. Mm. Definitely worth doing. Yes, it's interesting you talk about the skills because I go in the opposite direction, actually. I... I find myself trimming out skills lists from character sheets because because the other thing that traditional character sheets in role-playing books do is they, they're more like worksheets often for generating your character. Whereas in a one-shot or a con game to, to fresh players, you're looking for something to just be played almost disposably so you don't need what I consider to be all of that advancement stuff. But, yeah, but I, I guess you, know, you go either way with the skills, can't you? But I like to have a nice focus sheet that shows me the five things I'm good at rather than the 20 things I could do, but five of them are better at than most. And and I always go for a bit of, not niche protection particularly, but sort of spread the love skills-wise around the four or five character sheets I've done. Um, so <laughs> on the rare occasion, it isn't d and I still have a fighter, a wizard, a thief and a cleric, <laughs> just by different names and by setting them up in that way. And, and do you know what? I think... I think stereotypes are massively underrated when it comes to con gaming because I think the idea of a face and some muscle and the wheel man, the, the reason they really work is you, you're giving your players every opportunity to get into the game as quickly as they can by giving them a bit of an archetype to lean on and, and people will take that as far as they want. But I like to, I like to have my characters for my con games, a bit like sort of stage acting, which is where everything's a little bit exaggerated, where, you know, people on stage wear a bit too much makeup and speak and enunciate their voices powerfully and do extravagant arm gestures because subtleties are lost when you're playing to a big crowd. And I think sometimes very, very subtle games that would be easy to get trodden on in a con environment where you might have some distractions. In fact, you will have some distractions. There'll be other people around. There'll be all kinds of other nonsense going on unless you are sitting in your lodge or chalet. Um, so I, I kind of I kind of go for like the big beats on the character sheets and and with with the scenario too. Or, or, but, but then you know that that suits my style of gaming at home too. What about you guys? Do you go? Do you like to do some subtle kind of atmospheric stuff too, or or does that get drowned out by the con experience? 
I try to go for it, but as you say, it depends on the environment you're in. Mm. So, um, at Furnace this weekend, it's uh, it's in the garrison, which is an old army jail, basically in Sheffield. So it's still got crenellated walls and a tower and all that kind of stuff. And there's actually four cells as part of the convention environment with um, mm. kind of like bunker-like slit at the top, so you can get quite dark in them. But it absolutely drowns out any sound from anywhere else. So when I was playing my kind of horror game, Delta Green, on the uh, was it the Sunday morning, I think, we didn't hear anybody else. So it was quite easy for us to all to lay a bit of atmosphere down there. And then equally, when people got shouting and all the rest of it, it didn't impact anywhere else. So that worked out really well. But then my second game that day was up in the main bit with three of the large tables of people. And it, we really struggled. You know, we played one ring, which is quite complicated potentially for some people. Certainly seemed to be anyway. And with lots of distractions, people start leaving, people chatting and hanging around, all the rest of it. You couldn't get any atmosphere and a lot of it was lost. And one of the things about the one ring I found, because of, there's a lot of dice rolling in it, it really relies on people coming up with nice descriptions for what they're doing and why mm. they made that role or if it's a bad role, what, what the outcome is and that sort of thing. Because if you don't put any words around it, it's just a lot of people rolling a lot of dice. But if you can't hear each other, then very quickly all that gets lost. And you just try and rush through your dice rolls as quickly as you can to get to some kind of conclusion because you, you know, it's all a bit of a struggle. So definitely you've got to pick your environment. And sometimes when you go to a con, you don't know where you're going to be sat or anything. But I think one of the funny ones was when we were at um, Jane Con, and there was a big sports hall full of games, Cthulhu National, something like that. And at one point, half an hour in, the gym had to read out extra, extra, read all about it. This newspaper boy shouted something. And one table was about 15, 20 minutes behind everybody else. So once they'd finished, after a quarter of an hour break, someone down the far end was shouting extra, extra, read all about it. And a massive cheer for everyone else. But for the rest of that sort of that scenario, anything that was happening, that table already could see it coming ahead of time. So that, that GM had no chance whatsoever. And the noise level in the room just got louder and louder as well. You know, you've got 20 tables all competing to have their say. And the guy farthest away from the GM on any particular table shouting louder than everybody else, which puts off the guy next to him on the next table. Yeah. So, yeah, environment can impact it massively. So anything you can do to alleviate that is good. Uh, and it, that might come down to picking your choice of game. You know what I mean? You've got a really subtle emotional game. Um, something like Ribbon Drive, where you play a soundtrack, or Pity for My Thoughts, which can get very high on the feels and inverted commas. Or even something like Glee, which, uh, Gleeville, which was a, a kind of Glee crossed with Smallville hack that happened at Furnace, where we basically made them have a room of their own, which they decorated, and there was lots of karaoke and singing and dancing and all kinds of emotional shenanigans going on. But, but they really needed to be in a separate building or whatever, because that, that just wasn't <laughs> going to work. You know, on the next table to someone else. So if you if you're doing something off piece, certainly, or you're trying to get emotional stuff, or you need a bit of quiet to build atmosphere, you've got to try and check what environment you're going into and make sure that you're going to get the facilities to do that. Otherwise, you might want to pick a different game, I guess. Yeah, or pick a different con because there's there's cons for every flavour, aren't there? And and con organisers will bend over backwards to accommodate um, players' needs in every sense. So uh, there are better cons than others. You know, there's games that I would trot out at Dragon Meat, which would not be suited necessarily for something like Tentacles or or anything that's like an evening slot. There's like classic evening slot games, aren't there? You know, Call of Cthulhu on a Saturday night when it works is always going to trump Call of Cthulhu on a bright Sunday morning when, you know, apart from the hangover, there's not much pretty eldritch about Sunday mornings in England. So yeah, yeah, picking your time and slots right, and 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 those environmental factors. Do you know what I, I think? Sometimes I think it's easy to forget that there there's loads there's loads of things that need to happen in a line for a game to be really good, and it's not just the system and the PCs and the scenario. Often it, it's what appears to be really common sense stuff like looking after your voice. I missed half a furnace once from shouting too much on a Saturday, and I lost my voice on the yeah, Sunday. Right. And, it, and it's just absolutely awful. I mean, because I couldn't, I couldn't even play. If you can't speak, you, you, you could, are struggling. You, you couldn't hold the conversation, could you? Yeah, absolutely. I had to write down my apologies um, to the game czar uh, to say that I, well, I wouldn't be able to run my games on the Sunday because without a voice at all, I mean, not even a whisper. I mean, getting home was hard work, just trying to speak to the taxi driver at the train station. <laughs> but all of that just came from simple overindulgence on Friday night 
and spending 12 hours on Saturday with a raised voice at the table. Because one of the things to bear in mind is that convention gaming can get quite, not stressful, but it's an endurance sport as much as a sprint. And um, I mean, at work, they give me a break every couple of hours. They wouldn't insist on me running a meeting for four hours straight at volume. Uh, and then, you know, 15 minutes to, to grab a pot noodle. They're back in for another four hours of, of almost shouting and then a quick glass of water and then all evening till gone midnight. But the HR department would have a shut down. But at cons, that's what GMs put themselves through. And and simple stuff like get yourself a great big fat bottle of water and and, and sip liberally from it all day might do the scenario you're going to run on the Sunday afternoon a lot of favours. Um and I'm not saying don't enjoy yourself because God knows cons are all about enjoying yourself and having a couple of pints with friends as well. Absolutely. But, you know, the, you're probably going to have a worse scenario if you try and do it on two hours sleep than if you did it on six or seven. So I'd bear all of that stuff in mind. That environmental stuff can be really big. Yeah, definitely. Nutrition's important. It tends to be a lot of crap at conventions or most people that mm. some are sensible. But yeah, I'll have some oranges or something. So definitely water. I've got through I must get through at least a liter and a half to two or three liters of water every every four hour session as a gym. Mm. If I'm not drinking beer, of course. Which yeah, is you've got to keep you Yeah, it's basically water, isn't it? But yeah, you've, you've got to keep lubricated if you're doing a lot of talking. Mm. And I suppose that can also be a bit of an indication if you're talking too much. It I guess it depends on the kind of game you're playing, obviously. Mm. But you don't want to be doing all the talking, you know. Just beware of yourself when you're pacing games. If the players are happy enough having a little bit of a discussion amongst themselves or doing a bit of planning or having a little bit of a bicker or something like that, as long as it's not game stayed, take five minutes to have uh, to let them have their, their say, you know, and let them all go along together and judge your time to get things moving along. But equally, and I do it quite frequently, is I just chuck five minute breaks in. If I feel like yep. I'm getting to that point or I can feel the scratchiness in the back of my throat or whatever else, just say, Okay, cool. Come in five minutes there and just give yourself a break and have lots of breaks. You know, have one every hour if you want to. That's what I have to do at work. You know, if you're staring at a computer screen all day, you need to take five minute breaks and that's a HR requirement. So it should be the same for your game, really. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. If you need it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I always, I plan for those breaks. I have one a couple of hours in because, you know, if I were driving, I'd stop for a coffee after a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> not that I'm likely to, uh, to kill anyone driving one of my con games. Oh, actually, no, that could be true. But never mind. Um, I, I'd have a cup of coffee every couple of hours, and and also, you know, I've seen I've seen some sterling efforts from con GMs. I've sat there as a player and watched great GMs, but I've watched them absolutely run themselves ragged, um, basically acting at speed for like four solid hours with barely a breath because they're running at such a pace. But they see that pace is just, you know, talking a lot, going, and now you, and now you, and now you, and going around the table. And it's exhausting to watch. I mean, I don't know how, I, don't, I really don't know how they do it. And I don't know how they do it over more than one session because they look drained at the end of it. And and I would say, you know, that, that one of the best things about gaming is it, it runs at a pace, which is, it, it's very easy to go too slow. And I totally get that. But you can go over the top as well. And you can break yourself doing that. And you don't have to because there's other activities that rely on adrenaline. And I would say that tabletop gaming does not rely on adrenaline. That's that's not that's not what you're there for. <laughs> there's little bursts of it every now and again, you know, the thrill of a good chase. Uh, but there's another podcast as to why they don't happen in games. But, you know, I think, you know, calm down a little bit and maybe shoot for a, a really good three-hour game rather than a four-hour game where the wheels burst at the end because everybody just went pop or died of fatigue. You know, maybe go for a shorter game. I, I, I would much prefer something that, that gave me a little bit of extra time at the end for maybe talking about that game afterwards. That'd be great. Yeah, I don't know when it started. I don't know if it was a Gen Con thing, whether it was um, something that happened at some other thing, uh, event, or it was written in a Jim, uh, James Guide or something somewhere, but four hours for a convention game. Why that? I don't know. It doesn't have to be. I'm with you. I'd much rather have a punchy two-hour game that was full of absolutely amazing stuff all the time, every the riotous time and finished early, mm. than four hours, you know, well, two hours plot dragged out to four hours because someone thought they should give me my money's worth, which I've had. In fact, mm-hmm. 
I'm not sure whether you, were you with us at Minehead. There was one yep. of the games we played there where it was it was once an hour dragged over two sessions, and that's where yes. you had to pay by the session. Well, the, the second session was the reward for finishing the first one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't feel like a reward, did it? <laughs> it felt like we were being punished for not doing the first one well enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's weird. I mean, yeah, four hours is, is too long. Yeah, four hours is way too. If, no, it's not way too long. Four hours is fine. And and there's 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 plenty of people who want to play um, eight hour sessions, like you say, or twelve hour ones, but over multiple slots, and and that's got its own kind of pacing. Uh, nothing against that at all. But if we're, if we're talking strictly about one shots here, then if your slot says four hours, I think anywhere between two and three and a half is the sweet spot. I think anything less than two is is probably a bit off. Although I'd take it if it was brilliant. I absolutely would. Uh, and I'd consider yes, the time exactly. the time back would be absolutely outstanding. And I'd probably want to sit at the table and, and just chew the fat with the rest of the guys around the table about all the great stuff that just happened if it absolutely banged. And I don't see why it can't because there aren't many movies that I'll sit through for three hours without getting a, a, a sore head or a sore ass or at least a mixture of the two. Um but yeah, that, that four-hour thing is it, it's embedded now in consulates, isn't it? Maybe it's from the days of playing of an evening with your buddies and it's, what, 7 till 11 or 8 till midnight. That's It's like an evening's worth of gaming, isn't it? But I don't know. My brain certainly starts to go after two hours and I'm running a blooming thing. So I don't know why they're so <laughs> I don't know. People, people seem to worry quite a lot about the, the convention games and getting the time right and all the rest of it. I know there's some gems that run for five hours almost regularly and so they can't possibly get their game down before hours. Hmm. And I find that really ridiculous. I'll put it out there in that way. Feel free to disagree, find us in usual places, send us an email. But if you can't get a convention game under four hours, then you need to cut down your convention games, frankly, for the first place. Your whole plot everything needs looking at. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, four hours is a massive amount of time. Like you say, extended movies, even Lord of the Rings, the director's cut last three and a half. If you can't get a game into that, then you're trying to do too much for a con game, frankly. Yeah. It might be fine for your own game, but don't try and do it in a convention slot because it won't fit. Mm. There's something to be said when you make scenarios for having sort of flexible bits in. There might be extra side quests. You know, like if you play Fallout 3 or something like that, and there's lots of little side quests you do, along with the main quest, you can always stick some of that there ready and have it as optional. And if your game seems to be taking too long, don't even introduce it. And if it's going too quickly, then go some extra bits in front of people's browser and get to do that instead. Hmm. But yeah, try not to overrun. That's rubbish. I've done it a few times. I think we all have because it happens mm-hmm. sometimes. But apart from anything else, you've got to consider other people's time. Quite often, there's only one hour gap between slots and people need to eat, might need to wash or get money or anything, you know. So don't eat into that time too much. And if you feel like you're going to, or it's getting that way out, then you need to ask people if they're okay stopping. I think, I think that's just a courtesy thing, isn't it? Yeah. It is, mate. It is, uh, and and I, I fall victim to this all the time. You know, I should follow my own advice when I'm writing my con scenarios on my one shots. I always think what I've written is not going to be enough, always, and it's always way too much. <laughs> and, and and I don't recycle much stuff either, which is probably poor form. But I always, always, always think, well, you know, even in D and D, which can be as structured as you want it to be, I kind of allow for um, a scene per hour. And that scene can be just one massive fight, or it could be some role play and a little scuffle, or it could be you know some extended diplomacy, whatever. So I can put in like a scene per hour, and um, so you put in four scenes for a four for a for a four hour slot, and it's the first two scenes can can rattle by. So you think to yourself, oh my word, I'm really going to run out of game here. And then scene three turns into a slot all of its own, and it just devours everything because you, you, there's only so much prediction you can do. For, and there's only so much playtesting you can do. And I would recommend you do playtest your one-shots if you get the opportunity, running out on your home game first just to iron out stuff. But there's no guarantee it's going to turn out like that under live fire conditions because you've got five strangers who, unless you're very, very good at signposting and don't mind a bit of metagaming and saying, listen, guys, I think this scene's over now or, or we've dried up all the information we're going to get from this well, then the, the guys sitting opposite you don't know what's important and what's not. And... You don't want to step on their toes if they look like they're enjoying it. And you don't want to say, no, 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 I insist we drag this out a bit more if it looks like they're not enjoying it. So 
you, <laughs> you, you've got to build in some flexibility, haven't you? And, and that's, that's a, that's a tough ask. Um, and pre-published scenarios struggle to do that. Uh, and they're written by reasonably professional people and they try and hit all the, all the touch points of good gaming. But it's a difficult thing to write a con scenario, but less is usually more. I think I want to say. Um, and I think stuff that you can excise from your scenario at a second's notice, if you can drop a section out or maybe add a section in at the last minute if you need to and be prepared to sort of improvise around a little bit, that, that's, that's asking for quite a bit from, from a GM to make it look seamless. But it's a skill that, that can be learned and, um, and the masters make it look really easy, don't they? Yeah, for sure. I was speaking to Pete about the, the adventures that he ran this weekend, and I think for one of them, it sounds like a ridiculously small amount of stuff, to be honest, but he, he genuinely goes to time or almost overruns quite often, or it tends more towards that way than underrunning anyway. But it was um, a Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. thing, he's in Cypher System, and it was along the lines of a bit of a talky bit, small fight to get used to that, some investigation, go somewhere, big fight, bit of a chat, kill a brain baddie, or, you know, it, it, I can't remember the exact to it, but it was like that sort of thing. There was only about five or six elements to it. But that, that filled up his three or four hour slot quite happily. Yeah, I've I, I played in him. I've I played in his Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Bonnet, and it does, and, and the time flies by. Absolutely flies by. I remember looking down at my watch, and an hour and a half had gone by. And we'd been intent on the game, because Pete runs a really good game. But I, I hadn't seen him turn a page on his notebook once in an hour and a half, and I don't think he needed to. Because he had his, his bullet points and some antagonists and a few stat lines. He had some props and cool stuff too. But we weren't grinding through story um, or content at the speed. Well, I don't know. It, 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 it sounded perfectly paced to me. But yeah, when you look back at it, you think, actually, that was a movie would have done that in 10 minutes. And I'm not saying that role-playing games should do because they're different. And I totally get that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely it's absolutely fine, I think, to to not have a huge amount of content and let the players fill it up because the players are going to add stuff. That's what you invite them to play for, isn't it? For them to bring stuff to the game. So if you've yeah. got it too filled out in advance, there's no room for them. And that's not good um, because then they're just listening to you tell your story. But which brings me to the, the other point I wanted to raise, see what you think about this, guys. Is, um, I really like railroaded adventures. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I go to some length sometimes to hide that fact from my players, but um, but often they are pretty straight down the line. Uh, and sequential events scenarios do have the the benefit, I suppose, of being quite easy to keep or literally on track. But I know that you like stuff that's more tied around agendas or events. Um, that's you know if if it looked like a flow diagram, it looked more cloud based, I suppose, than my straight up and down stuff. Is is there a we you know what are pros and cons of those methods of generating a, a one shot game? Well, the the sort of direct method here to be to see the which which Pete has arguably um, got with as well to a certain degree. It's got benefits in that you know where you're going generally, you know where where things are ahead of time or roughly where it's going to go, and you can try and guide people in that direction. And you know you're going to come to a conclusion because we've mapped out on your chart. So that's all good. Problem can be is if players don't want to follow that or they don't feel engaged or they feel their characters wouldn't go down that route or they want to do something else uh, or they get frustrated because they're trying to do something else or find something else interesting. But all you've got is this next bit down at point C and they don't want to go from B to C. They've got some other ideas about what they want to do. And it can manifest sometimes, certainly in investigative scenarios or Cthulhu or that sort of stuff, that players are banging their heads against the wall not knowing what to do, and you've not given them a clear enough signpost. Hmm. So if you're going to go for a railroaded adventure, and you arguably have to try and disguise it a little bit so people don't feel like they've just done a, a merry-go-round getting shown various sites, you've also got to give them enough clear pointers so they go in a certain direction, I think. Hmm. Conversely, that I'm more like this, this sort of certainly for my Savage Worlds games at the minute. Um, how I tend to do them is I have a map and I have some locations on it, and then I have a story that's happened or is going to happen about who's kidnapped who or what the actual problem is in the town or you know, something like that. I've got an idea about how the NPCs will act and what's going on, and then throw the players at it. 
Mm. And that can be good if you've got players who are proactive, who like to go poking things with a stick. You see silver mine on a map, I want to go look at the silver mine because there must be something there. That all works very nicely. However, it does fall down when you're looking for people, or so you've got people who are looking for just the, the straight line plot. They're expecting there to be a story point to tell them where to go next. And if you don't have a clear direction, they'll tend to mill about until someone comes and tells them what to do. Mm. And you never know at a convention which players you're going to get. So whichever way you're going to do it, I think you've got to make sure you've got a way of pushing things forward. That doesn't necessarily mean down a straight line, but you've got to push them onto another thing that will happen. So the, the thing that helps with that is having bangs, as they call them, in the hippie world. Something that will happen to the players or around them, forcing them to act. Um, so that can be to push them further forward. It could just be that if they're hanging around their hideout thinking, well, we're stopping here because there's a big Cthulhu monster out there and it's scary. Men with guns walk in. I think it's an old device from a detective novel. I can't remember the, the author, but he always said, like, if you're stuck for ideas, just have some men with shooters walking. Mm -hmm. um, so either way, I think you need ways of pushing things forward, if that's along your railroad or to make people go to other bits of the site. So mm -hmm. one of the ones I did quite recently in a science fiction game was of a timer. Uh, and it was kind of an alien situation where someone was going to need the planet from orbit. So you've got 50 hours, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And they could go around chatting, they could uh, investigate stuff, they could try and accumulate gear. But all the time I'm ticking a counter down and the players knew they had to go and do something. Mm. And that kept them going forward. But there's lots of other devices. But I think mm. each method suited to different types of players and you don't know which players you're going to get. That's that's the challenge you've got. Yeah, isn't it? You, you never know what you're going to get. And and I guess one of the reasons why I, I like to have a, have a bit of a, a series of things that happen, whether it be encounters, events, or agendas, or bangs, is I think there is a pressure on the one-shot game to have a big climax, to have a, a great big route in two in the finale, and that sometimes plays into the hands of games that overrun, frankly, because you've got this great big finale, and, and by God, you're going to run it, <laughs> no matter what. Um, and if, you're, if your game is due to finish at four, or the slot's due to finish at four, as soon as it starts edging past three o'clock, you, you you might be thinking to yourself, "Oh, I need to get this finale in." And so, even even a big sort of sandboxy adventure, if you've got a finale planned, you you are kind of pulling them towards that conclusion anyway. And if it's a if it's a bit more scripted in the sort of style that I gravitate towards, you you kind of you're starting to flag that up. And I, I think I think you've got you've got to get you do feel like you've got to have a big finale to your game, some big explosion or something to remember. And Call of Cthulhu games have always done this consistently well, where have you go all completely mad and shoot each other, which seems to be the way that every Con Cthulhu game ever ends. Um, and you spend three hours pretending that's not going to happen, and then one hour gleefully pulling the trigger on your on your friends. Um, but you know, I, I'd be interested to to see what your experiences of like Gaz recently, maybe this furnace, maybe some other cons of what were the final scenes like. In the con games, did they finish better than they started on the whole, or did games have a kind of a, a you know a good level of quality throughout, or did they start strong but inevitably taper? Um, I've got my own opinions on the games that I run, but I'm not very objective about them. So it'd be interesting to see what you've thought as a player recently. I think one of the problems can be, or not problems, one of the challenges can be getting your games going. Sometimes. Uh, you get a bunch of players who are waiting to be spoon-fed a little bit or don't mm -hmm. quite know what to do. Maybe they're unsure of the system or the characters or what they're supposed to do in the scenario. So it's important to get a clear message first, I think, or at least have a way of encouraging people to do stuff because certainly a challenge can be getting people going. And as you've mentioned, the Sunday morning slots, I think I had that this, this weekend, to be honest. It was me as much as the players, but we're all a little bit groggy first thing Sunday morning. So the first half an hour or an hour, not a lot of stuff happened. Mm. They made a break and came back and regrouped and started going for a bit more. So there is an argument for running in media res games. So you start straight out of the game with a big fight or some other action sequence or you, you plane's about to crash land or whatever it is, just to get people involved and say, don't bother looking through your character sheets or reading your background now. Now Your plane's about to crash. What are you going to do about it? You're the pilot. What do you do? And push people that way. Some people don't like it and don't be put on the spot. But I think that most people will go with that sort of thing. I find the investigative games can be a struggle as well, mm -hmm. that you kind of sniff around looking at plot bits and you get little bits here and there, and you don't 
you don't you're actually getting any of it, you know what I mean? You'll be achieving roles and getting clues or things that don't mean much right now but will mean something later on. But as a player, you can feel a little bit frustrated with that, I think. You you kinda of want more to happen. I think possibly for when the Savage game I run uh, you know, Saturday night, ideally the players just kinda of wander off trying to find this lost princess and stuff happens to them. But I think my group sort of wanted to work out where they should be going. So I perhaps spent a little bit too much time investigating. Well, not too much time, but I, I what I was concerned about as a rep was perhaps they were getting bored or frustrated because they couldn't see a clear route. When from my point of view, it should just be like, well, just do whatever and I'll, I'll make stuff happen. But if you've not said that explicitly, then no one's to know, I guess. Hmm. Um, and I think most games got towards some kind of conclusion, which is good, one way or the other. I think all the scenarios got somewhere where Everybody's happy with the finish. I think that's important to do. And again, that comes down to the pacing and making sure you've got enough time because you don't want to kind of rush it. I don't know. I forgot what the original question was now because I started rambling. <laughs> A bit like games, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the mission again? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, don't let me forget about that. What was the mission? That's that's going to be one of my bullet points to address. Uh, but yeah, the thing I was after is, can you remember... Um, uh, and in the way that you like to to plan out your scenarios that you run, by definition, you have a bunch of agendas and you drop the players into the middle of it and see what happens. Are you saying that you can run successful, timely scenarios with a big bang when you don't quite know what that last scene is going to be? Or do you know what that last scene is going to be? Are, are your your players inexorably drawn towards the scene you had planned all along? You have to have, well, what I do is have an idea about what's going to happen if the players do nothing. Mm. So you have that in mind. There's going to be some kind of denouement there. And then you throw the players at the plot or the the bunch of stories or bangs you've got and all the rest of it and then see what happens. So you're aware there will be a final scene, whether it's necessarily the one you originally envisaged or everything comes before that or maybe after something comes along. But... You can drive towards some sort of conclusion, whether it's on a time frame or a certain person setting off the bomb or, you know, you've got to get a planet or the ritual's going to be complete and the demons summoned or whatever it is. There's a thing that's going to happen. So you can, you can always work towards that event and you can always chuck stuff in that will let players know that that event or thing or the new one's getting closer. Yeah. In terms of you could make the atmosphere different, you can have NPCs call up, you know, say panicky. You can have the friends not answer calls because they've been booked off by the baddies, mm. or you can have signs of the baddies moving around, or tankers with pentex with the side of them going to a certain direction, or whatever it is. You can put lots of different signposts and things going on. And generally, your sort of end scene can end up roughly where you thought it was going to be. How it will all fall out, you don't quite know how prepared the players will be or what precautions they've taken or other things they've set in motion, who knows. But I think even with a bunch of fairly loose things, if you have in the back of your mind what the story is if the players didn't get involved, then you've got a good idea of how things will generally go and they just react based on what the players do and how the baddies would react to that. Mm. So that's the way of guiding it, I think, is in terms of how much shit would they have to cause before... The body stops what he's doing to go and send better goons after them or that sort of thing, which sort of feeds into you starting off with your low-level fights, getting a little moderate one to a big finish. You kind of look at the, the Eye of Sauron where Sauron doesn't care about the Hobbits at first, and then he starts sending Nazgul, and then by the end there's whole armies involved kind of thing as they get more and more troublesome. And think of it like that, I guess. That at first mm -hmm. when the players tip up in town, no one cares. As they start sticking the beacon, that's when you can start escalating things and come to that conclusion at the end. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the reasons I ask is I'm constantly trying to think of you know when we when we do these little advice chats that we do to each other and hopefully people listening, I'm kind of conscious that we often talk about con gaming and one shot gaming. So I, I really want to try and underline where I can that what the differences are between those and your regular home games, um, and I think they are different. And one of them is that the original advice for role playing games is that unlike Monopoly or Cluedo or anything else like that, there's no winners and losers. But in one-shots and con games, I think it is absolutely possible to say whether you won or lost the scenario. And and by that I mean, did you get a big, meaty conclusion? Is it over? 
like properly over. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody died or that there was a big fight and a baddie died. But did it reach the kind of conclusion where if you ran it again, it would have to be a sequel, not just a continuation? That's what I think I'm aiming for when I'm writing one shot games. And that's how I judge their success or not, I think, is is based on the very last bit of it. And, and, I, and I often fail at that. I have great openers loads of really good scenes to bring people together and people tend to put more effort into the beginning of their games than they do into the end but I know, I know we'll cover this in future podcasts but whenever I'm writing games I try and think of the final scenes and work backwards because I like the element of a one shot being exactly that it's done and it's over and I very rarely return to them either I, I don't run games more than once or, or even necessarily with the same cast of characters I'm making myself loads more work but I always like to move on to something new um, and over the years of convention gaming, it would look like it would look like a bunch of short stories rather than a long novel. Um, what's your take on that, guys? Is, is do you do you come from a similar place, or do you not do you not feel that way about your games? What, what's it like? Well, setting up my games for conventions tends to be quite iterative, and thinking of ideas and writing down, and then doing something else for a bit, and coming back maybe even days later, hmm. and chucking some more bits on flesh on those bones, and what would be a good idea. Or sometimes it's depending on what, what character I've got, trying to do something around them. So if you took something like Pendragon, for example, I've run a whole set of Avengers with the same characters, probably out of laziness. But Pendragon's very good because of the traits. So I've got one knight that's lustful, which is bad for knights. They're not supposed to be lustful, they're supposed to be chased. But purposefully, he's got the one trait that's bad. And they've all got one that's bad, so you've got a big button you can press. And quite often, in most of the scenarios, there'll be a lord's daughter that he's not supposed to mess with, but he's lustful, so he can push that button and try and make him do it. And that same situation must have happened dozens of times now with lots of different people in all kinds of different scenarios and games. And how the player reacts to that is different every time. And the consequences of what he does is then different as well. And then how the other knights react to what he's done is then different. So I get a lot of uh, repeat use out of putting things in the adventure that are about the character and will put the player front and centre or the player is front and centre and give them some kind of moral dilemma or something to think about. So that's always a good thing to put in. And I'm probably more about adding in those sort of details and sets of scenes rather than having one big thing right at the end that's going to be the finish. Mm. Um, and I like having a bit of a mystery. I don't necessarily mean an investigative one. But for the knights, for example, it can be, well, we need you to go to the North Reaches and find out what's happened to this castle because we haven't heard from them all winter. So you go and do that. Mm. And that'll be my, my headline. And then I'll think about stuff that might happen on the way. And I'll think what might happen to the castle and then why that might be interesting and add embellishing details around it. Mm. But it'll be more about the journey about getting there rather than the, the great mystery of the castle necessarily or something like that. And that's how Pendragon might work. Uh, and similarly for the the savage game I ran at Seven Hills. My big idea to start off with was I wanted to do Arabian Nights. So I started writing down, you know, gyms, ifrits, flying carpets, camels, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, what's interesting? I said, well, the Sultan's daughters must have gone missing. Okay, I'll make one of the characters the Sultan's daughter in disguise. And then you just build things up from there. So I didn't really have an idea about how that adventure was going to end, apart from ultimately the PCs are going to end up going back and trying to reunite the Sultan with his daughter and or take over the Sultanate and or, you know, bring his wife back and do something with her or whatever. So I knew there would be a climatic scene. Who would be involved in it from an NPC point of view or what the PCs were trying to get out of that? I didn't really know. Mm. Uh, and I was happy to find that out through play. And it was more about having stuff along the way to give players opportunities to do stuff or have opinions on them that was good. And you stick in antagonists and, uh, you know, rivals that could go either way, depending if they're swear or intimidated or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because I was leading up to it in the end, have a big mass battle, but the players decided that they're having none of that at all. They were going to take the flying carpet and circumvent all the armies <laughs> and uh, go and take a more direct route. So that, that's what they did, and it all worked out great. They had a, a duel with an invisible vizier on this flying carpet above the Sultanate while all these massed armies were staring at wondering what the hell was going on. <laughs> and what the camel was doing on the flying carpet is anyone's guess. But that was a great, you know, a great finish. Uh, not the one I'd sort of imagined, but um, it, I didn't really so have a hard and fast favourite on how it should end. I just had one in mind for if the players didn't have one themselves. 
And I think that's the important thing to do is have some idea of what could happen if the players aren't going to come up with something or, you know, that that sort of thing. Have Always have some ideas in your own mind of how things are going to go all the way along. Mm. And somehow it will engineer itself into a good finish probably. Yeah, and and that that kind of listening to to your description of the way you you structure your games and the and the stuff you do in advance and all the rest of it, it sort of makes me think that, that I think you and I are very similar in the way that we approach our games in that we do prepare them and we do put thought into how they're going to go and, and I think we use different methods of preparation um, and our notes would probably not be much good if we passed them to each other and said run that because they make sense to you and mine make sense to me and so on. But we definitely, we put uh, forethought and effort into preparing for our games. So, you know, and, I, and I'm conscious here of time and that we don't want to break our own slot rules by overrunning and <laughs> keep it fairly punchy, <laughs> I guess. But the, I guess my, one of my last topics for discussion would be then is, is it is it a good thing to do loads of preparation and maybe not use it all? Or is it perfectly viable? And I don't, I don't think I see this very much for people to rock up and basically improvise a game whole cloth. Because with con games especially, you've got to kind of put a sign-up sheet up. And if you put up, um, it's a game of Dungeons & Dragons, I'm not sure what's going to be in it yet. Even then, you might get some sign-ups. But most of the time, I get the impression that people have prepped their game for a one-shot. What, what do you think, guys? Have you gone in? Have you gone in blind and had success, or does that just not work for you? Uh, yeah, I've done it, and I think one of the uh, amusing ones is a guy called James Mullen, who's with the Milton Keynes Rock Bay Club. He's one of those gems that runs in every slot, uh, and he'll run in every slot at conventions like Conception, where there's eleven or twelve slots. Wow, that sort of thing. So it goes proper crazy, uh, and all his or most of his stuff tends to be more of an indie event or a story game or the players are going to make this game up at the table kind of mm. thing. Uh, and he does very well with them. But someone joked one year that he could put up a blank sign-up sheet with just his name on it and it'd get filled. And it did. He got six sign-ups <laughs> just with a completely blank sheet. Um, and there's been various other ones where someone challenged someone to run a game about a seagull on a beach or something. I can't remember what it was. And that, that got some sign-ups up. You can put anything up, to be honest, sometimes if you've got a bit of a name as a referee. Um, but it comes down to the confidence you've got as a gem as well, obviously. So like in my Pendragon games, I'm pretty confident with the knights I've got because I've used them so often and I know their touch points. I could make a three-hour scenario out of that quite mm. easily just using some basic tropes. Certainly with people who haven't played Pendragon before, I've got a whole host of stuff in the bag. But even people who had, we can probably make something out of it quite easily. And I bet for D&D you could do the same sort of thing. You've probably got enough in your back catalogue of bits and pieces of hidden away worlds or... Mm. something from probably a setting I've never even heard of or you know you could make your own one up pretty much on the spot of something you wanted to do uh, and you could probably make something out of it I reckon you can get a couple of hours away and try it in D&D or something you can stick some combat in and that doubles it straight away yeah, yeah. so I think it's you know it's, it's fairly easy to do if you've got lots of gaming experience having the confidence to do it is a different thing mm. Now, for me, and this is where prep comes into it. Obviously, we we have to caveat that there are certain games like Microscope that you make up. That the whole point is that you make up a world for yourself and decide what happens to it. So, we're not talking about them. I think we're talking about more traditional games. But depending on what you call prep, can change as well. Like I've sort of hinted at a lot of my preppies, thinking about stuff that could happen. That doesn't necessarily mean I've got loads of sides of A4 written down about box text of areas or how plot's going to go. It's just, I thought, in this situation, what's likely to happen? How will that NPC think about this or feel about that if something happens? What when that disturbance blows up? Will that gang boss think about what the PCs have done? Or something like that. And there can be, you know, that can be idle time on the bus or while you're waiting for some code to compile at work or whatever else you're doing, while you're doing the washing up. You know, that all counts as prep. I think when people talk about prep, they quite often mean writing character sheets or having mm. lots of notes, or reading lots of thick tomes. But I don't think it's necessarily that. The prep you need to do is whatever's going to make you feel comfortable when you run the game. So Dr. Mitch, one of our guests we've had previously, has to write a lot of notes. He has to have all his stats ready. He has to do all that stuff, because that's what then makes him feel comfortable when he runs again. Mm. I don't have to write all that stuff, and that's fine. But I'm not going to tell him that he doesn't have to either. I think each individual gem is going to sort of work out a little bit about what makes them comfortable at running the game they're going to do. So 
although I'm happily saying here, yes, you can run periphery games, it's not a problem, I do it all the time. Someone like Dr. Mitch probably will be terrified by that suggestion and, and would need to do some prep. So it depends on your GM. I think it is possible, but you've got to have that confidence and have played or run a lot of games so that you know just what you're doing at the drop of a hat, mm. is my view. Yeah, uh, and I think even if you don't do a lot of prep for your home game and you like to improvise and you like to have creativity happen at the table and all that kind of stuff, you can absolutely bring that mentality to a one-shot or a con game. But you do have to give some thought to the other things that we've talked about in the last hour in that you have to give probably a bit more thought to pacing because it's going to be a one-shot. You need to have um, probably a bit more thought that you're going to try and be super inclusive of strangers which you won't get your home game because you know the guys who rock up every week and you kind of know what buttons to press and all the rest of it so it is it is preparation of a sort even if it's just considering your style and you know the stuff that works in your home game will probably work at a con game but you might have to press the button in a different way so mm-hmm. you know there's definitely things to consider even if you're a, a master of your Talislanta game at home. I don't know where I got that one from. Anyway, you're a master of something. <laughs> oh, let's say Earthdawn. We never get through a podcast without mentioning Earthdawn. Let's say you're a master <laughs> of running Earthdawn. Yay! <laughs> the Earthdawn testimonial. Um, yeah, you, you, you can't bring your, your methods whole cloth to a one-shot game because a one-shot game is different. So just say, be mindful of it. Don't be scared of it. Absolutely, don't be scared of it. Running one-shot games is is really, really good for tempering your GM skills. It's awesome for that in the same way as, you know, the best writers try and do creative writing courses where they get given a paragraph to come up with a great story or, or short story writing to, to a theme or on demand. It's brilliant for that. And, of course, the element of surprise that you get from having half a dozen strangers or, or different group dynamics in front of you brings that level of 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 vim to your game that you didn't even know you were missing at home so you know don't be frightened of any of those things but i I think you you can't just rock up with your home campaign and expect to run it for another four hours and for it to be the same so that's the only caveat i put on that yeah i think my my final piece of advice although you know it seems to be another one of those podcasts we're going to talk about for several hours more (laughs) if you know what i mean um, but as we get to that time, another final piece of advice is probably to draw the players in as well and speak to them like, you know, other blokes you're going to have a game with or girls or whoever. Because quite often there's a sort of um, unspoken rule that the GM's in charge and he comes with a game and no one even says hello to each other. And I'm sure we've mentioned all this before, but, you know, mm. say hello, introduce yourself, ask people what sort of game they're looking for or tell them what sort of game you think it's going to be. If you're playing a game of Cthulhu and expecting it to be dark and gritty, say like, you know, come on guys, want to try and get this moody, if that's all right, are you all on board with that, that kind of stuff. Otherwise you might end up with Carry On Cthulhu, you don't know. Mm. But I think a good thing to do is just initially try and get people's expectations or find out who's played the game and who's comfortable and get their buy-in and uh, get them all to introduce their characters when you start out to each other and that sort of Mm. thing to get them talking to each other. So... Yes, you're a GM in a con. Yes, you've got a certain amount of roles and responsibilities there, but definitely engage people early and encourage them to have their own say and get them involved and help you run the game as well and help other people out who don't know the system or don't have the knowledge, that sort of thing. You know, Recruit everybody at the table to help make the game a success because it's everyone's responsibility. That's the yeah, and mate, slot two is looming and I can't add any more advice to that, so that's, that's an excellent way to... To finish up this this week's discussion, so con gaming and one shots. Um, uh, that's mine and Gaz's thoughts on on how to milk the best out of running them. Uh, it's a subject we'll return to again and again. Uh, and I think we've got some stuff lined up for the future about actually writing one shot scenarios and, and how best to structure stuff, or in ways that we know that has worked for us and for our peers in the past. So good stuff for this week, Gaz. Thanks very much for for that, mate. And um, I think if you want to tell us we're right or you want to tell us we're wrong there's multiple different ways of doing that drop us an email at the place where you found this podcast and please do join in with our ever swelling merry band of patreons um, who give us a couple of their bucks their hard-earned bucks every month to make sure this podcast continues and 
And we always like to record a little bit extra for those guys. So there's always like extra behind the scenes content to become a Patreon of ours. So head on over to www.patreon.com slash smartparty um, where you can be one of the cool kids and maybe even join us. Uh, so that's it from me, guys. Uh, over to you, mate, for some final thoughts of wisdom. First and last thing to say on this subject is run a game at a convention. You'll meet some great new people. It's not as scary as you think. Certainly, if you tell people you're new or put it on your sign-up sheet, you'll get a lot of love from the gaming community. There was certainly a lot of that this weekend at uh, Furnace. And I'm sure if you have a word with the guys at Dragomeet, John Dodd organises the games, uh, you can probably run a little game there and get a lot of love of people and meet some new friends to the bargain. So, yeah, run a game. It's fun. It'll make you a better GM and I'll get you some new friends. What more could you want? And that's all this week from What Would The Smart Party Do? Thanks, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.